Good morning, and welcome to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN, where our goal every Sunday is to entertain, enlighten, and expose you to information that could lead to positive change in your life. I'm Larry Hardesty. Happy Father's Day, everybody. We have several guests for you this morning. In the leadoff spot, Sherry Mazur, Senior Vice President of Communications and Public Affairs for the V Foundation. The ESPYs are tonight. And Sherry will give us kind of a sneak peek into the broadcast and some of the awards that you will be able to see. Later, we'll chat with author columnist George Willis, currently with the New York Extra, who has an interesting story entitled Sports Media Must Take a Serious Look in the Mirror. Hmm. Thanks for joining us. Make sure you have a pencil, pen, and paper to jot down a few notes or phone numbers you'll need for today. We'll begin this edition of New York Sports and Beyond after this time out on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond. I'm Larry Hardesty. Sherry Mazur is a communications professional with more than 15 years of experience in the nonprofit sector. She has served as Senior VP of Communications and Public Affairs for the V Foundation. She first joined the Foundation for Cancer Research in 2008 as Director of Marketing and Communications. During her tenure at the V Foundation, she has managed a broad scope of efforts such as comprehensive website revitalization, communication needs for high-profile signature events, community fundraising initiatives, an organization-wide 20-year anniversary celebration, celebrity and board engagements and outreach, company-wide intern program management, and strategic public relations. Missouri co-led a brand recognition initiative and currently oversees all external communications for the V Foundation. Join me in welcoming Sherry Mazur to New York Sports and Beyond. Let's welcome in Sherry Mazur, Senior Vice President of Communications and Public Affairs for the V Foundation. Hi, Sherry. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for taking a couple of minutes on this busy Sunday, which happens to be Father's Day, because you've got a big broadcast that you're involved with tonight. Let's talk a little bit about the ESPYs. We sure do, yeah. So typically ESPYs taking place in July, but now they're, of course, today in June. And, of course, that's due to the COVID pandemic, and it will be a pre-taped show. So something a little bit different than what we're used to seeing from ESPN. So, Sherry, with that in mind and seeing how great ESPN worked on the NFL draft, so you kind of had a run through, what were some of the different challenges of trying to get people in certain places and timing and everything to put this grandiose uh, big time broadcast that we're going to see tonight together? Well, of course, yes, they had to do it in the most responsible way and respect that people are at home and couldn't all travel to LA to at work, Megan Rapino, Sue Bird, and Russell Wilson, of course, are hosting. Megan and Sue are a real-life couple, so they happen to live together, so it's not a problem for them to host together. Um, and Russell Wilson and his wife, Sierra, also have their tri- some tricks up their sleeves as they're hosting remotely from their home. Yeah, so a couple of challenges. And how were the other awardees, how were they going, how were they incorporated into the broadcast? Well, you know, ESPN has left a lot of surprises for the viewers, and and we're included in there. So I am really excited to tune in and see how they're handling it. I imagine most of it will be handled with people in their respective um, spaces and doing much of it virtually. You know, Sherry, we we talk about the COVID-19 pandemic, and it has really changed uh, a lot of the things we look at, how we how we're living our lives, and it's kind of made us a little fearful about what's going forward. But just take us through the adjustments that the V Foundation has had to make during this time. 
Well, unfortunately, we did have to postpone and cancel many of our events because it was no longer safe to bring together large groups of people. So it's absolutely been a challenging time um, as fundraisers. But with that said, unfortunately, cancer doesn't take a break and it does not realize that we're in the middle of a pandemic and cancer patients still need um, treatment. So the urgency of our mission still remains very, very much the same. And that's why events like the SBs are so important for the V Foundation to highlight our mission and to help bring in some of those critical dollars that will help the cancer patients. Sherry, let's talk about the Sports Humanitarian Award that's sponsored by Bristol-Myers Squibb. Yes, I'd love to. So these awards are going to be encompassed into the SBs show tonight, and um, they highlight the impact of athletes using sports to make a positive impact on society. So it's just really cool, and it's a neat way to see who are actually giving back in their communities. And now this, what's the funds from from this humanitarian award are now benefiting the Stuart Scott Memorial Cancer Research Fund? They sure are. And so something really exciting happened this week, and that is that Bristol-Myers Squibb has made an additional $1 million donation mm-hmm. to the V Foundation for the Stuart Scott Fund, and that's actually going to support the work of African-American B-scholars. So uh, with this new donation, that's going to enable us to have awarded more than $11 million into that Stuart Scott Fund. And you know what, Sherry, we've mentioned this before, and I think it's a great time just to briefly go through it again, is that, you know, when we think of what the V Foundation does, they don't just limit one type of cancer. You have researchers, you have funds that go to various types of cancer. And so when we highlight Stuart Scott or we highlight the speeches and, and obviously what Jim Valvano did and how he put this organization together, it's not just focused on one area, correct? Yes, and that's definitely one of the unique aspects of the V Foundation. So we're not just focusing on breast cancer or brain cancer uh, um, or any type of, you know, cancer that goes to a particular site of the body. We're also focusing on the Stuart Scott Fund, which looks at disparities in research and also um, funds minority researchers. We're looking at the Robin Roberts Thrivership Fund, and that Mm. actually helps cancer survivors become thrivers. Um, we have Dick Vitale, who's such an amazing champion for pediatric cancer yeah. research. So there's so many different um, valuable areas of cancer research, and the V Foundation is funding where the very, very best work is being done and providing the best outcomes. Sherry Mazur is my guest. She's the Senior Vice President of Communications and Public Affairs for the V Foundation. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 987 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Sherry, of course, talking about the big SB Awards that highlight tonight, tonight, June 21st at 9 p.m. Make sure you're in front of your TV. You're going to watch Russell Wilson, Megan Rapinoe, and Sue Bird. They are the hosts, but there's other different surprises. And as uh, Sherry and I were mentioning earlier, when you watch what ESPN was able to do with the NFL draft and have people in different locations and it flowed seamlessly, I'm I'm a little excited to watch this version tonight. And Sherry, who's a good corporate person, is not giving us any secrets as to what what could be happening tonight. So you're going to have to watch it and enjoy it as well. Uh, Sherry, let's talk a, a little bit of, of history and let's go back with Jim Valvano and, and the inaugural ESPYs in 1993. Yes. Can you believe it's already been 27 years since the inaugural ESPYs? I know. So 
Um, that's when, of course, Jim Bavana took the stage. He was very, very, very ill with cancer at that time, and he was receiving the Arthur Ashe Courage Award for his perseverance and positive luck among amidst his cancer diagnosis. And he, along with ESP, announced the formation of the V Foundation for Cancer Research. And just talk a little bit, Sherry, about some of the advances that you've seen, some of the things that when you're in your meetings then and you hear from the researchers and you hear from the doctors that little small increments of advances and things that are going along hand in hand with people going to their physicians and making sure that they go early and get tested and, and, and are doing their part it makes it a little easier now with the advances to try to catch the cancer early. And then in this case, you have a better chance to beat it. Of course. So as you mentioned, early detection is key. Um, In addition, immunotherapy is um, a hot area where you're actually using the patient's own cells and um, helping use the patient's own body to fight the disease within. Um, But we're seeing many, many cancers that are having higher success rates and better outcomes um, as a result of the research that's being put into um, delving more deeply into them and finding better therapies for patients with fewer side effects and um, increasing lifespan. So the future is looking quite bright, and we are very, very optimistic that um, we will achieve victory over cancer. It's just a matter of when that's going to happen because, unfortunately, there's just not one type of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, cancer has hundreds of diff- different diseases, and um, each one must be addressed. Sherry, how has the V Foundation changed from the time you've gotten there? The, the, the focus is some of the things that you've watched grow and the things that you take a moment one day and you just sit back and like, wow, I remember when this was like this and now look at what we're able to do. Well, that's interesting you should ask. I've been with the V Foundation about 12 and a half years. And when I started um, the first year I was there, we were award- we had awarded about $7 million in research grants. And last year we awarded, I want to say, about $28 million. Wow. So just um, the growth in fundraising and so – you know, what that enables us to do to put the money into the hands of the very best researchers across the country has been significant. Um, in addition to that, we have tremendous new partners like Bristol Myers Squibb, like um, the folks at the American Cornhole League who are doing this cool trick shots challenge for us. Um, we have new funds like the Stuart Scott Fund that was established about five years ago or the Robert Strivership Robert Fund that was established a couple of years ago. So um, it's just like a whole different organization um, in all the very best ways. You mentioned the American Cornhole League and the Johnsonville Trick Shot Challenge. Let's talk about that because this is a way where local folks can raise money to help the V Foundation as well. Yes, yeah, so... It's actually fun. I did it myself. Um, I did you really? Yes, I happened to have neighbors who have a zip line in the backyard. So I jumped on that zip line and we set up cornhole about halfway down the line. And I had to try seven or eight times before I could actually make it into the hole. But my persistence paid off and I was successful. <laughs> but you do not have to have a cornhole set to take the trick shot challenge. You can kind of make it work with anything that you, you know, if you have a ball or a piece of paper or whatever that you can throw into anything like a wastebasket, you can take the trick shot challenge. Um, The key is to take a video of yourself doing that 
post it to social media, and for every video that tags Johnsonville and hashtags Trish, Trick Shots for Good, um, they will give $1 to the V Foundation, and we are going to be receiving a $100,000 uh, minimum donation from the um, from this program. So it's pretty cool. That's excellent. That sounds, that sounds like a lot of fun, too. It is. It is a lot of fun. Uh, my daughter participated, and she actually jumped on the trampoline and threw her um, her little cornhole sack outside of the trampoline into the cornhole board. So I think hers was one of the trickiest trick shots that I yeah. <laughs> I like that trickiest trick shot. <laughs> <laughs> um, while we're talking money, how do we do it? Where does it go? What's the website? Oh, good question. So the website could not be any easier. It's v.org. So that's the letter v.org. You can go to the website, learn more about the V Foundation. You can check out the Stuart Scott Fund a little bit more if you'd like. Um, from there, you could easily make a donation or learn how to join us on social media or learn how to host a fundraiser for the V Foundation that can be virtual, of course. So many, many different things that you can do if you simply visit v.org. One cool thing about us, and I know that you know this, 100% of the direct donations benefit cancer research. So it doesn't go towards our overhead or our office space or anything like that. It's 100% of the direct donation going to research so people can give with confidence knowing exactly where their dollars are going. And that's so, so important right now because, uh, Sherry, you know, you hear stories, you go online, you hear these these sad situations and and sad episodes of people who were, you know, got phone calls and asked to donate or has, asked to give money to something and and they turn out to be scams. So it's very important to know that when you donate your money to the V Foundation, a hundred percent of it goes to the cancer research and the programs. And also, let's talk about Charity Navigator because that's very important as well. Of course it is. So Terry Navigator is one of the largest evaluator evaluators of charities in the U.S. And so the V Foundation has received multiple four-star charity ratings from Charity Navigator, and that's the highest uh, rating that you can get. So that indicates that we operate with transparency, that we are a trustworthy organization that people can feel confident in donating towards. And Sherry, let, let's just be honest with our audience. This is a tough time for everybody. It's a tough time for corporations. It's a tough time personally. It's a tough time to donate money. And, you know, a lot of the things that and the events that you guys normally do, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to do this year. I don't know as we go forward. Normally we're talking about basketball and college basketball and all the things that, you know, we normally do and, and the, the, the events that you normally have, and you're not going to be able to do that. So we understand that it is a tough time. It's not easy for folks, but, you know, whatever you can give in this moment, it's going to be used to help beat cancer. And and I can't think of a, of a better situation, a better charity to, to put your money into at this point in time. Yes, you're right. It's been a really challenging uh, year for businesses and for individuals who um, have been impacted by COVID-19. And, um, you know, I know a lot of people have lost their jobs or are struggling financially. Um, so we're just simply asking people to do what they can. So if a donation works for any amount, that is great. And if not, um, we would invite them to join us on social media or just share their story or um, just 
become a little bit more educated about cancer research and learn more about what we do and, and the different initiatives we have. And, you know, hopefully this time will not last much longer and we can all um, resume our, you know, lives and kind of getting back out there into the world. And um, hopefully people will come back to the V Foundation when the time is right and make a donation of any amount that they can. So, Sherry, let's have a couple of points before uh, we conclude our conversation this morning for folks who may have just tuned in. Once again, tonight, June 21st, 9 p.m. on ESPN, it's the 2020 ESPYs and Sports Humanitarian Award. That's I'm excited about it, Sherry. What can we expect to see? We're going to see Russell Wilson, Sue Bird, and Megan Rapino hosting for the first time three hosts of the ESPYs. We're going to see lots of cool awards being presented, the inclusion of the Sports Humanitarian Awards showing how athletes are doing good in the world, um, some of the charitable things that they're doing during these times, and um, lots and lots of surprises. And, of course, the website to donate and to find out more information about the V Foundation is? V.org, letter V.org. Sherry, as always, uh, I know the show's going to be great, and I know that your folks are going to breathe a little sigh of relief in watching that show tonight, knowing that your hard work leading up to it has been accomplished. But then again, tomorrow um, tomorrow morning, you'll start again for the next event <laughs> because cancer doesn't stop, and you guys can't either. So we want you to uh, we thank you. We want you to thank the folks that work with you or your colleagues and everything. And listen, whenever we can help get the message out about the V Foundation, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Well, do. Thank you. You're always so good to us. Thank you very much. Thanks again, Sherry, for joining us. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. When we return, columnist George Willis with a message to sports media. That's next on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. My next guest has spent 23 years as a sports columnist at the New York Post after working previously at the Times, Newsday, and the Memphis Commercial Appeal. He is the author of The Bite Fight, Tyson Holyfield and the Night That Changed Boxing Forever. I know because I was there. He's also co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Unnecessary Roughness, Inside the Trial and Final Days of Aaron Hernandez. Join me in saying good morning to my buddy, George Willis. Hey, George, how are you? I'm great, Larry. Good morning to you. Uh, happy Father's Day. Oh, oh, thank you, thank you. Same to you. Look forward to that. Most of the time I'm at the U.S. Open and covering yeah. golf at that, that particular time of year. But, uh, you know, I usual year so far. So, George, let me ask you this. Before we get to your new venture, which I'm happy, I'm sorry for the old venture, but, you know, doors open and you move on and, and you tackle the next challenge. As mm-hmm. a columnist, uh, what's been the difference with COVID nineteen? How has that changed how stories are covered, or some of the things that you've been you've been assigned to write? Well, it was interesting until uh, you know I uh, split with the Post in, in late April. We had basically been doing stories about how people were coping, uh, you know, during the pandemic and the lockdown and boxing gyms being closed. And I even did a story on a bookie who was out of business. Uh, (laughs) It was his birthday. I guess it was March 12th when everything shut down, all the sports shut down. And he's been uh, basically a bookie all of his life. And all of a sudden he realized on his birthday, he was out of a job. So, you know, that was one of the more interesting things. I find it curious, the balance of uh, 
basically trying to pretend that everything is normal and talking about the upcoming season and which teams, you know, might be a little better than the other team and, and things of that nature. And then on the other hand, uh, you have to do stories about the athletes uh, being concerned whether or not they actually want to play these games or not and whether or not they're going to happen. So it's, it's uh, part fantasy and part reality that's going on right now. You were with the New York Post for 23 years. I, When I first met you, you were the Giants beat guy for the New York Times. So that's got to be when I, I know well, I had hair. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was actually Newsday when I was the beat writer for the wow. uh, for okay. the for the for the Giants uh, covering for Newsday. That was from eighty seven to ninety four, and then I went to the New York Times after that for a couple of years and covered the Mets and St. John's and the Nets, and uh, basically was just there for two years before joining the Post in nineteen ninety seven. Wow. Did you say 87, George? Oh, my God. Yeah, that's when I got to the big city. (laughs) And George Young looked at me and said, you've got a lot to learn. (laughs) As only he could. (laughs) Right. As only he could. Oh, man, he was something else. Um, Great man. He definitely was. George, how sports changed from the time you came to, quote, the big city? to what you're looking at today as far as athletes are concerned? How have athletes matured? Have they matured? Well, I think they've matured, and I think they've always been pretty mature. Uh, You'll have to remember, I came in in 87 covering the Giants and the people on that team, you think about it, Phil Simms and Carl Banks and George Martin and people like that, Mark Collins, and on down the line to even Stacey Robinson, who wasn't a big-time star, but was a very smart guy and, and a big figure in the Players Association, Gary Reason. So these were a group of mature men. That's how they won Super Bowls, and that's how they won football games. I think they, the athletes have a bit more power nowadays, and they're starting to realize that with the free agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially gave them more leverage than they ever had before, and now they have this thing called social media where they can use the platform to – uh, you know, and not control the narrative, but maybe affect the narrative and push things in their favor. Or even if they just want to talk about things like what's going on, social issues and things of that nature. So they have a voice now when they really didn't have a voice before. It was just the the sports media who quoted them in the locker room and they presented their quotes in whatever fashion, you know, we wanted to present them. And they really had no no outlet to say, hey, that's wrong, or this is what I really meant. But now they can almost go straight to the readers through uh, Twitter and things of that nature, and then now the media is reacting to them. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Can you imagine um, LT on social media? <laughs> I'm sure LT was not going to be on social media because he didn't want anybody knowing anything about his business. So. You know, but I'm sure there would have been a few politicians in the locker room there. My guest is George Willis, columnist and author. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. George, uh, congratulations on the new job with the uh, New York at the New York Extra dot com. And you have an interesting story for them. And it comes out the title of it. Media must take a serious look in the mirror. What are you trying to say about us, George? Well, uh, you know, let's let's jump back a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, after ending a 23-year run with the Post, uh, I was looking for, you know, something else to do that really wasn't 
you know, going to require a whole lot of heavy lifting right now, traveling, all that kind of stuff. I wanted to sit back, work on a few uh, personal uh, 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 adventures that I've thought about. But I also wanted to, you know, stay out there and have my voice out there. And so uh, the New York, the NYExtra.com, it's, it's, it's a nice fit for me because Lynn Robbins, he's a former New York oh, Post okay. uh, writer. He's the editor-in-chief, and we've got a couple of uh, uh, writers on there that I'm sure you're, you're familiar with. And it's an upstart website. You know, we're looking to grow, and uh, we're not, uh, you know, by any means where we want but I think it's nice to be somewhere that's still in New York and where you, I plan to write more than sports. I plan to write a little bit of news and, mm-hmm. and even uh, entertainment articles as well. Uh, but as for the first one, I think it's the elephant in the room. We've got sports uh, editors and uh, general managers and, and people who dictate uh, what we write and what we cover. And we're talking about diversity and inclusion and everybody, uh, you know, being – having a voice and looking like the people we, 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 we write about, you know, our sports staffs are not that. We are going back to the 1970s and the early 80s where, you know, if you look at the staffs and you look at the press boxes, boxes you know, there are very few minorities that aren't ex-football players or ex-athletes in those press boxes. So my basic column is just to have sports editors to take – a moment, a time, something, and look at your staff and see if you're doing uh, the right thing, so to speak. You need a diversified staff nowadays because these athletes are not, as I say in the column, going to just shut up and play. You know, they're going to have a voice, they're going to have opinions, and you have to have writers who understand where they're coming from, who identify with what they're trying to say. And that means having more people of minority, more women in sports, more, as I say, black, brown, uh, everybody under the rainbow. Your sports staff should have all of that and not just be composed of a certain set of people. We need to get beyond that, and sports editors need to take a hard look at their staff to see if they're representing you know, the people they're covering. You know, George, that, that is, um, you, just made, you just took me back, and we all have examples of things that we've gone through, right? And I remember when I first started, uh, mid eighties and I walked into then Shea Stadium and I went through, if you remember Shea Stadium to get through the press room where the media was in electronic media, you had to go through, uh, the, the kitchen kind of, you right. know, where the dining room was. Right. And in going through the dining room, there was a gentleman sitting there. I can see him right now. I will just mm-hmm. say he was not black or brown and right. he was wearing a plaid coat. And when I walked through, he said to me, it's about time you got here. I need you to turn on the soda machine so we can, so I can get something to drink. And I had to share with him to say, Oh no, sir, I'm a reporter just like you. And, and, and so it's these experiences because people aren't used to seeing us not on the playing field. They're not used to seeing us not on television performing. You know, it's always in a performance situation, George. And I don't have to tell you, we can look now. We, and, and it's to, to bring the audience in as brown and, and black reporters, we have these conversations at the ballpark, at the stadiums. Mm -hmm. We talk about how there's so few people that look like us. We talk about how when you go to baseball, there's maybe a handful. When I was last there, a handful of 
of brown and black and brown people covering baseball as beat writers. We're talking, mm-hmm. and, I, and I was there like 2015, 2016, 2017, George. And right. so when you when you look at these frustrations and you see this, George, it's unfortunate, but we were having, I had these conversations in the 80s, George, the same mm-hmm. conversations that you're writing about today. Exactly, and that's what's really kind of disturbing to me is that you look around in the press boxes uh, today, and if there is an African-American in the press box, who, working as a writer who's not an ex-professional uh, athlete, you know, he's usually somebody of age, like myself, you know, in their 50s and 60s, has been around for a long time. You know, you're not seeing the, the 20-somethings coming up uh, in the numbers that you would like. You don't see the young reporters getting the beat jobs that, that you know, set the, the narrative for the day. It's the beat writers who cover the teams and write the stories the stories are what sports talk show hosts like yourself react to during the day. They react to what's being printed, what's written, what's coming out on the wire and things of that nature. That's, you know, they're not making the news. The news is being written and made by the beat writers and the columnists. They're at, they're at practice and talking to the team and talking to the players and talking to the front, front office. And those people are all majority, 90%, I would say, white males mm-hmm. and that's something we that has to be addressed it just cannot continue to be ignored because the newspaper business is in decline or people are losing jobs and there's not enough job people are hiring people you know mm-hmm. there were a number of people hired on my staff uh over the last couple of years so there's hiring being done but you look around and nothing's really changing and like i said i'm really concerned about you know, the 20-something people are, that are supposed to be coming up and and being involved and getting their opportunity to do this. And it's 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 just not there right now. And I think sports editors and general uh, managing editors and the people who run these websites, they need to really stop and think. And, and you know, what is their role in this, this thing? Is it just to cover what people are saying? Is it just to cover what the athletes say? Or are you charged with a responsibility on your end of doing something, of making some sort of change. And maybe this is something that can be done in that direction. George and George Willis is my guest. We, we've had, as we've talked about, we've had these conversations and there have been various uh, organizations who have reached out, who have spoken with people in hiring positions at these various newspapers and, and, and now websites and stuff like that, George. And just refresh the minds of our audience. What is normally the line that, that, that is given? What is normally the rationale, the excuse as to why there is not more representation of color in these, in these newsrooms? You can't find them. Don't know where they are. You know, <laughs> I don't know who, where, you know, things are like that. I don't need anybody. Uh, we tried. It's, it's, you know, you, you have to, yeah, if you really want to do something, you find a way to do it. If you really don't want to, or you don't care, you make excuses. So if they, they've got a whole organization there called the National Association of Black Journalists who has a name and number for uh, African-American students in college doing internships. Uh, and doing part in trying to position themselves to be a candidate for some of these jobs. So uh, it's really not that hard to find. Hey, they can ask me if they want to, you know, they can ask me if they want to. 
But this is something that sports editors, in this, especially in this city, okay, especially in this city, as diverse as this city is and the impact that the media has in this city, it's just a shame that, you know, we don't have a more diverse sports media across the board. It's true. And what what is so scary about and true about what you say when they say you can ask you, because guess what, George, if they have a question about a African-American reporter teams that they are not familiar with, who do they come and ask to vouch for them? Right. <laughs> but you can, so, right. so we, we're good enough to vouch for them, but we're not good enough for you to come ask us if there's somebody else who can do a job or if there's opportunities available. Right, right, right. You know, I was never asked one time, hey, is there someone that maybe you know of who might be uh, a suitable candidate for this position? You know, we're looking for this, that, and the other. Uh, never, not one time. Uh, I offered, I remember throwing out Chris Broussard's name before Chris Broussard became Chris Broussard. Yeah. That's far back. Yeah. I think he was the last person that I said, you know, you might want to take a look at this guy. He seems to be pretty good. And then, you know, nothing came of that. And you try a couple of more times and then nothing comes of that. And, and uh, you know, you just try to keep doing what you can do. But yeah. I would, I would hope that, you know, in this climate that they would, the, as you say, people in charge of hiring and firing in the sports media, I'm going to be very broad with it, sports media, take a look at your staff and see what you see. See what you see. And then if it needs to be changed, try to change it. When we return on this edition to New York Sports and Beyond, George Willis on the role of African-American athletes during this time. That's next. You're listening to 98.7 ESPN. Thanks for stopping by New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Let's conclude my conversation with columnist and author George Willis. George, you mentioned in this column that you've been the, on a couple of occasions, the Jackie Robinson on your staff. Um, what's that like? How were you received? And as you further went down the line, as years went by and the years, you know, become more current, uh, when you were still the first how were you treated in comparison to the first time that you were the first African-American in, 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 in the, on your staff? Well, I believe when I joined the, the Memphis Commercial Appeal in 1983, I was probably, if not the first black sports writer on their staff, either the first or second. And God's funny because I told myself coming out of college, I didn't want to work in the South and I didn't want to work in the East. And so our first job was in Memphis, Tennessee, and second job was New York City. So, you know, that's when I knew God had a sense of humor. Uh, I had a few things happen when I was uh, working in Tennessee. I uh, First day of work, I learned the word jigaboo that I didn't really know exactly what that was. Mm. But, <laughs> but then later on, uh, they had a, uh, I referred to this in the column, a golf outing of the West Tennessee golfing coach. West Tennessee Coaches Association was having a golf tournament. I was in at a country club called Brownsville Country Club at the time. Uh, the day before the event, I was told I was be better off not attending because they found out the color of my skin. And so uh, basically barred me from the event. Uh, it became pretty much a big thing. A lot of coaches turned around and didn't participate. 
But you always felt a certain kind of way down south, you know, and it was just uh, a way of life there. I met some tremendous people in Memphis. I mean, just some tremendous people. It was great educational experience. But when you're the first, you kind of always feel you're the first. But as a reporter and a professional, you, you, as you know, Larry, you don't let it affect you. You try not to think about it. You just do what you got to do. Be professional and do your job. And that's the way I've always tried to approach things. And that's why you keep getting hired. And and that's the balance that you have to understand because there are times that you have assignments and things you go through. George, you're just like, you know what, boy, I'm telling you, this is not easy. Exactly. <laughs> not exactly. Easy. <laughs> yeah. I don't know yeah. about this one. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But, you, mm-hmm. but you understand that not only are you working for you, but you're trying to open the door and leave it cracked open. For someone right. to come behind you so that you're not just Jackie Robinson, that you have a a, a, a a Don Newcomb and you have a Roy Campanella. And eventually there's like two, three, four, five more people on your staff that you get a chance to, you know, have the opportunity to work with. Right. No doubt. Uh, and really, when I joined the Post as a columnist in 1997, I really didn't want to leave the New York Times. I just got into the Times, uh, as I said, probably a year and a half earlier. I was happy covering the Mets. Uh, you know, working for a newspaper that everybody knew in the world. And, you know, they wanted me to, I was talking to the Post, and at first they wanted to hire me as the Yankees beat writer. And I was like, I really didn't want to jump from the Times to the Post and still be a beat writer. So I said, if I came to the Post, it would have to be as a columnist. I would like for it to be as a columnist. And Greg Gallo, the editor at the time, uh, we had a number of conversations. Anyway, he agreed, and I was, and I felt almost obligated to take the job because I was just the eleventh African American sports columnist in the country at the time. So, and then you know, I talked to uh, Ralph Wiley, the great late late great yeah, Ralph Wiley, yes, about it, yes. and and he said, yes, this is something you have to do because we need you in that position of visibility and being able to open doors for others down the road. And I think, you know, we got to a point where it was 25 and 30 African-American columnists around the country before, you know, newspapers uh, started to fold left and right. So, and like I said, I felt a sense of duty to take that job. And it was a great job. I mean, I've loved my, I loved the job for 23 years, writing sports in New York. You can't beat it. It was, it's tremendous and it's going to continue to be tremendous. Why? Is it, why did Ralph Riley tell you it's so important to take the columnist job? Why did you feel it was important for you to be a columnist? Explain that to the audience, George. Well, at that particular time, uh, Spike Lee was was threatening to uh, call a boycott on the New York Post because of the lack of African-American sports writers on the staff. And so it was a topic of conversation at that particular time. I remember going to the HBO theater theaters and having a meeting where Spike Lee was there, Ralph Wiley was there, I think Bill Rode was there, there were a number of people, and the topic was the lack of African-Americans on sports staff uh, in New York City and around the country. And during the course of the conversation, uh, Spike threatened to boycott the New York Post. And subsequently, you know, I was hired as a columnist. Uh, you know, if Spike had something to do with that, then maybe he needs, we need to have another meeting again. I don't know. 
but uh, that sort of gave me a sense of obligation to to uh, you know accept the job and and try and open the doors for others who might come after me. And to shape what people think, because the role of a columnist, George, is different from the role of a beat writer and an everyday or general assignment reporter. Exactly, because, uh, you know, the beat writer, the beat reporters, uh, their focus is and responsibility is the day-to-day news. Uh, you know, who's hurt, who's playing, who got released, who they might sign, uh, who they might trade for, things of that nature. The columnist comes in and gives his opinion about what's going on. You know, this thinks this is great. They should do this. Maybe they should try that. This needs to change. And you're given a lot more responsibility for your voice. Uh, years earlier, back in the day, it was a bigger platform. You had legendary colonists like, you know, Dave Anderson. And you can go back to all the greats that have been in New York and have written columns. Uh, not so much anymore because there's so many different platforms now that everybody has a voice. Everybody with a Twitter is a columnist now, Hmm. but what you have to rely on is your experience and your access and see what you see and write what you see is what I always say. And uh, whenever a minority columnist writes something that has a racial tone or issue, you're always going to get, you know, the, the email that says, Oh, this is all you write about. Mm-hmm. Well, not really. It's probably 10% of what I write about. But naturally, if I write about race, it's going to be all I write about or I'm biased or things of that nature. So you have to write what you what you feel, write what you think, write what you see, and have a conviction, as George Young used to say. If you have a conviction, stick with it and go with it. That's right. No question about it. George, just as a, a, a general question, during this time, and the NBA players are – grappling with this somewhat right uh during this time specifically after what we've seen with george floyd and his murder and the and the other two numerous to name unfortunate incidents that we've had male and female throughout our history the role of the african-american athlete seems to be revitalized again you know what i'm saying george How, how do you see it i think it's wonderful i think it's wonderful i know there was a period in time uh we were begging, you know, professional athletes to, to to take a stand, to to speak out on certain issues. I mean, it was silence, kind of like the Michael Jordan uh, area and the Tiger Woods, and we were complaining that they didn't speak up enough. Now, you know, everyone seems to be engaged in 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 one thing or another, and to one one level or another, and I think that's good, and I think that's only going to continue. Uh, as we go on, I think you're going to hear a lot more from athletes, all different kinds of athletes, not just two or three or four that always mm-hmm. speak up. But, you know, all athletes, so different colors and races and, you know, <laughs> everything. And you're going to hear that now because they have a platform, as I said before, to speak their mind. And so we're going to hear from them. And I think it's a good thing. They are the ones that, that can affect change. They are the one with the leverage now you know, economically and with their celebrity. So, uh, you know, they're going, professional athletes are going to be a force to be reckoned with and recognized uh, not only now, but in years to come. I'm very curious, George, before we wrap up, is how do you see the different role in media when you talk about access, George, and you talk about how, 
certain reports because here's the bottom line reporter has a chance to get close to an athlete they break a story that story happens now all of a sudden you get some notice maybe you have a chance to move laterally maybe you have a chance to you know do other things and improve your situation as a reporter but now with this COVID-19 situation and you got a taste of it earlier where the pro sports kind of mirrored college where they brought out coach or the general manager they brought out i guess in baseball the the winning pitcher and and the star of the game and now that interaction that where you're able to build a relationship with an athlete and then from that help you to to get sources to to get stories and to build and to make news how is that going to change post-covid-19 well i think you're probably going to see a continuation of what you've seen now is the athletes being brought out to speak to the media and I'm not surprised that, you know, really it's, it's, it's gone to that. Uh, I expected that to happen even without COVID-19 because you're getting, you're getting such an influx of media and reporters post game uh, that it's almost a, a, a tough working environment. Uh, even during the daily coverage, when I started back in the late eighties and the early nineties, you could attend practice and you could stay in the locker room almost until the last player left. You know, I remember sitting down with Otis Anderson and sitting with him until there were maybe two or three people in the locker room and everybody had gone. Uh, Mark Bavaro was always the last guy out of the locker room and maybe you could sit with him and he'd grunt at you a little bit, but you got to know the players that way because you could just stay in the locker room until everyone left and you got to know them. Now you have a, 45-minute window where everybody has to be in the locker room all at once, and you get these little clusters that move from one player to the next player to the next player. So as you say, there's really not a lot of time to get to know a player, especially if you're not a beat writer. Now, the beat writer is going to travel with the team, go to every practice. The players will see them every day. So at least they have an opportunity to get to know the players. But if you're a columnist or you're somebody who is there once a week or once every other week, that 45-minute window is very hard to to get to know a player, to get to know what he's thinking, to get to know what's happening with him and why maybe he might be struggling because it's it's often not just the X's and O's thing. It's a what's happening at home thing. Mm-hmm. And so and so to get to a place where you can, you know, talk to a player about that, it's a hard job nowadays to crack through, you know, these 40-minute uh, access uh, at times that they have where there's 50 microphones pointing at, at, at Saquon Barkley and you're trying to get one question in. Uh, it's going to be very tough. So it can be done. Uh, if you're good at what your job, you can do it. But the access nowadays is so limited and restricted. It's very, very hard to, to get beyond sort of a superficial relationship. George, thanks for taking a couple of minutes this morning. Best of luck. Uh, you can read his column. Must take a serious look in the mirror. Sports media must take a serious look in the mirror by George Willis. He's now with the New York Extra. You can read it also on the nyextra.com. George, best of luck, my friend, and we'll talk soon. And they can find me at G Willis Sports on Twitter. Too. So look forward to speaking with you soon, Larry. That wraps up this edition of New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. We thank you for listening. We'll join you during the week on ESPN New York tonight and right back here next Sunday morning on New York Sports and Beyond. For my incredibly talented producer, Ray Santiago, I'm Larry Hardesty. The conversation continues right here on 98.7 ESPN New York.